So, hello and welcome to the Eternal Possibilities podcast, where we explore the endless opportunities that are possible with a medical degree. I'm Chris Arian, a junior doctor from Queensland, and I'm joined by another junior doctor from Queensland, my very own twin brother, Michael. Hello. Um, our guest today is Professor Ian Harris. Professor Harris is a professor of orthopaedic surgery at the University of New South Wales. He's a practicing orthopaedic surgeon with several public and private appointments who specialises in trauma surgery and lectures both nationally and internationally on the topics of orthopaedics, surgery and epidemiology. In addition to sitting on numerous boards, he also leads a prolific research unit specialising in surgical outcomes and the evidence base for surgery in general. These works form the basis for both his PhD and his book, Surgery, The Ultimate Placebo, in which Prof Harris argues that many common surgeries are performed without robust evidence of their effectiveness. Was that a close enough synopsis? Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, he concludes that much of the perceived benefits for many of these procedures could therefore be due to the placebo effect, and hopefully you'll excuse the misnomer there. Both the book and Prof Harris has subsequently garnered much attention, and the professor has been kind enough to join us today. Professor Ian Harris, good morning. Good morning. So I suppose something that struck the both of us from the book is just how deep the professional affections are for all these poorly evidence procedures, and I suppose how some seem incredibly reluctant to still modify their practice, um, even when presented with evidence challenging this. And I suppose a pertinent example was uh, the example of bloodletting, which had persisted for over 3,000 years, um, which was used for a heap of conditions with scant evidence to justify it. Uh, why do you think this reluctance persists today, even in the age of evidence-based medicine? Um, it's because uh, we are human first and scientists second, I think. And to be human is to be faced with um, two events and naturally want to link them together. So I'll give you, um, you know, a very small example. Somebody presents to you with back pain. You do a scan and that scan shows something. You know, it could be a dehydrated disc or a small annular tear or whatever, but the MRI often does show something. It's a normal human response to associate those two. So you see someone in pain and you find something, you immediately think that those two are causally related. That's a very human thing to do, and that's been built into our logic circuits over evolution, over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, it's, a, it's a logical shortcut, and it makes us, um, you know, it actually makes us seem very smart, but sometimes it's wrong. And so this is what leads to um, illusions, for example. Um, and things um, seem to be doing one thing, but they're not. And so this is the problem. And what happens is people often get better uh, anyway. So a lot of people get better from a lot of things. And I can tell you about my own childhood where my mother had her own little cures for the common cold. Whenever we got a cold, she said, you got to do this, you got to do that. And it worked every time because I got better anyway. But of course she thought it was because of what she did. Um, now getting back to surgery, it's very difficult to convince people to use bloodletting as the example, and that was a, a classic one. I mean, that was when they started. It was only when they started looking at the evidence in an objective, scientific way that they found that it was not effective. It actually didn't work. 
Um, but the people who had been using it for thousands of years had seen thousands of patients get better after bloodletting. So you can imagine their reluctance to let that go. And so that's the problem. They were being human. They weren't being scientific about it. And they saw, you know, a lot of their patients get better. Sure, not all of them, but, you know, the ones that, that did get, because they already believed that this worked, the ones that did get better, they attributed to the bloodletting, and the ones that didn't get better were perhaps we didn't bloodlet them enough, or we, we started it too late, or it was, it was some fault in the technique of the bloodletting. It wasn't a problem with the bloodletting itself. So you can see how easy it is to explain these things. And that's the problem with surgery today because most of it is based on observational evidence. And observational evidence is subject to confounding and it's subject to error. People don't understand that. Um, and I think that's the core of the, the problem with why people won't let go of procedures that have been shown to be ineffective in objective experiments, but appear to be effective because many people get better. And even in the famous placebo trials that have been done recently in, in various procedures that have shown no difference, still show that most of the patients get better. Um, so you, that's the problem. I suppose it's to do with that Voltaire quote that you mentioned in the book about doctors are to distract the patient whilst nature gets them better. Yeah, there's, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of uh, good quotes about <laughs> how bad medicine is, you know, going back hundreds of years. Yeah. I suppose given that evolutionary hard wiring that you speak about then, have you noticed throughout either the course of your PhD or your book a bit of a cultural shift then? Are you finding that, you know, amongst the Australian surgical fraternity at large... Um, do you think there's a bit more reception to the idea that, hey, we actually need to be a bit more critical here? Yes, yeah. So, um, and sometimes these things take a generation or more to change. Um, and certainly I see a lot of young surgeons who, you know, have been in practice for only a few years who get it, you know, who, who really understand that how it works and how we, we have to at least pay attention to this kind of evidence and, and, and try to critically appraise it and take it into account. And they're also aware of their own biases. You know, I can't, just because a patient got better, it doesn't mean they got better because of what I did. Um, did they just, would they have gotten better anyway? Um, and they can find that out by looking at some of these, these trials. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's better. You know, it's not 100%. It's not a cut and dried thing where all young surgeons are smart and all old surgeons aren't. You know, it's not like that at all because there's plenty of old surgeons like me who, <laughs> um, who, who understand this kind of thing. Um, but I would say that um, my impression, and it could be my own biases and optimism because I haven't measured it objectively, but my impression is that um, things are changing. You mentioned that your invitation to deliver the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons Hamilton Russell address formed the basis of the book, uh, but what prompted you to uh, speak about surgery as a placebo in the first place? Um, what really opened my eyes to that was when I um, took on the Masters of Clinical Epidemiology. So my history as a surgeon was pretty traditional, so I did my training in, in Sydney um, did it, uh, went overseas to a couple of different places, um, 
went to Germany for a little while, went to America for a year, and mainly concentrated on trauma surgery. That was always my interest, it still is. And, um, and came back and operated a lot. And I did basically the operations that I saw other surgeons do and operations that had been taught to me. And I was pretty unquestioning, I must say. But um, I always wanted to be a good scientist and felt that I wasn't. And um, I admired uh, orthopedic surgeons that I looked up to who appeared to be able to appraise the literature and work out what was good research and what wasn't. I didn't have that ability. Um, and, and I was jealous of the people that had it. Um, I really wanted to be like that. So I started looking around. I really didn't know what to do or where to go to get that knowledge. The, there wasn't the term evidence-based medicine. I didn't know what clinical epidemiology was. You know, I was just a surgeon. I just operated all day. And, um, and eventually, uh, you know, I thought, oh, do I need to learn statistics? And uh, eventually I realized I, I didn't. It was clinical epidemiology, which is basically evidence-based medicine. And so my inquiries got me onto the, the University of Sydney clinical epidemiology course and uh, and I thought I think that's I think that's what I need to do and from day one I thought this is it you know this is what I need to do and it just opens your eyes as to what's true and what's not true and how we what biases there are how we recognize them how we um, negate them and uh, it, it was just an amazing course I absolutely loved it and I know other people who have had the same kind of um, sort of revelation or Unblinkered, unblinkering, um, going through clinical epidemiology, and you look at a lot of other things. So I was looking at, you know, um, the evidence for cancer screening, you know, and all everything non-surgical. And I was like, wow, all of this stuff that I thought was a no-brainer that really worked, you know, doesn't. You know, it's crazy. And uh, and then so I started looking at surgery, and I thought, wow, a lot of surgery doesn't even have this kind of evidence. It's we don't even know uh, if it works or not. And um, uh, so, yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. But a funny story about that was um, I started that course with a couple, I was a consultant, had been a consultant for about seven or eight years when I started that course. Um, so I only finished that about 12 years ago. And um, I did it with a couple of other uh, young or orthopedic registrars uh, at the time. And I would so look forward to this course. We, it was attended in those days. We went, and I deliberately chose it because it wasn't online. It was, you had to go in and speak to tutors and stuff, which I liked. And every Tuesday and Thursday night I spent at uni and uh, I would look forward to it. And, um, and I'd get there and I'd meet up with these other guys because I knew them. Um, and they'd be like, oh my God, this is so boring, I hate this, I don't think I can handle it anymore. <laughs> and I was really surprised, and I thought, this is incredible, you know, this is like the, the best stuff I've ever learned. Um, and so they, they, they dropped out, I think they just didn't like it. Uh, but it was an interesting story, because I was so taken up by all this stuff. Because it was, it was true science, it was, it was minimising error, it was uh, estimating the truth to the best of our ability, and, that's, and that, that really appealed to me, it always has from when I was at school. Have you noticed then, I suppose, a bit of a improvement in the way that that's educated to, to junior clinicians you're coming into contact with? Yeah, but that's a hard slog. And, and it's the problem. I was never taught any of that stuff. Um, I had no idea about any of it, which is 
really damning. You know, that we shouldn't be training doctors who don't know anything about the principles of clinical epidemiology because that's science, that's the science of medicine. That's what it's all about. And instead, you know, I was taught really in an apprenticeship model. I, I went around to, you know, heaps of different hospitals. Every six months I was in a different hospital during my orthopedic training. Um, I just learned how to operate and so I operated. Um, and even in my undergrad medicine days, I didn't learn uh, any of this stuff. So yeah, it's trying to be corrected. So the undergraduate programs are changing and there's a little bit more of this. It's still not enough, I don't think. Um, and we've certainly tried to change specialist training. So for some specialties now, for example, you need to do clinical epidemiology, like either a master's or something. So I think in some um, physician colleges or, or rheumatology, I think you need to do that. We've tried to raise the bar in orthopedics in Australia, and um, that's been a gradual process over uh, over many years. Um, but now, for as one little example, um, I can tell you that the training used to require you to do a research project, and that was a pretty low bar. Um, and I saw a friend of mine once uh, who hadn't done his research project um, was was given a quick one to do by his consultant so he could get his points to do his exam. And he presented it at the state meeting and I remember attending and I saw his presentation on an interesting case of patella fracture. Was it interesting? No. <laughs> uh, and that was his research project and he presented it and he got his points. So things have changed and now you can actually, and, and it's not so much, we just thought, oh, if you just do research, you'll be fine and you'll learn all about it and, and you don't. Um, so the emphasis has gone off purely doing research to learning about research, what it's all about. And I think that's better. And so, for example, you can even pass your research you know, points or whatever it is uh, for, the, uh, for orthopedic training by doing a, uh, I think, graduate diploma um, in clinical epidemiology. So um, I think that's fantastic. What if it's a really interesting case of patella fracture? Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's really um, <laughs> so speaking of the scientific method then, um, I suppose you noticed, noted in the book that, interesting, a lot of these cases seem to be underpinned by what you call the wobbly triad. Yeah. I was wondering if perhaps you could familiarise the audience with what that entails <laughs> and uh, what advice you'd give, particularly junior clinicians, uh, when they're trying to evaluate the evidence. Yeah, so that was so a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist came up with that. The, uh, I said, there's always these three things which, which underpin surgery, which are just, you know, rubbish. And he said, we should call it the wobbly triad. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, well, the wobbly tripod, wasn't it? I don't know, anyway. But yeah, it's three things, see if I can remember it <laughs> from the book. Um, so one is um, a biologically plausible mechanism, and that underpins so much. Now, I don't want to underplay that because that's important. You know, it's, it's good to have a biologically plausible mechanism for the treatment that you're proposing. The trouble is... Um, it's only a problem if you don't have one, right? If you do have one, it doesn't mean it works. And that's the problem. People say, oh, I've got a biologically plausible me mechanism for why this would work, 
therefore it does. That's not good enough. Because you can actually make up a biologically plausible mechanism for almost anything. And people have. And in my talks, I often give a slide of um, correlation is not causation. And I give these two matching slides of uh, polio rates versus ice cream sales. Yeah. And, um, and you look at it and it's like perfectly matching graphs. And you can look at that and you go, wow, polio virus must be contaminating the ice cream. Yeah, that's the first thing you think of. And you go, no, it's not that. You go, well, maybe, you know, ice cream makes your throat cold and lowers your resistance to entry of the virus. Yeah, you can think up a lot of crazy stuff to justify it, but that doesn't mean it's true. So that's the first thing is, is biologically um, uh, plausible mechanism. The second leg of the tripod was um, uh, observational uh, evidence. Um, and this is basically, you know, we, we did it on some people and, it, and, and they seemed to like it uh, or we saw them get better, you know. And so, like I said before, you could do that for the common cold and you get a 100% success rate. Um, so that doesn't mean, observational evidence doesn't mean it works. Um, and the third one is often lab uh, evidence. Um, and when you look into lab evidence, I'm actually... Uh, not a big fan of lab research. Now that sounds crazy. Um, it's kind of, well, are you a scientist or not? You know, I've done lab research and I've seen a lot of lab research and I've looked into it and lab research is way overrated because we look at it as this is the purest research. You know, this is where things are measured to exact quantities and, um, and, and effects are, uh, are very clear. They're not. It's all over the place. Lab <laughs> research is really not that good. There's a lot of error in it. There's a lot of small numbers. There's a lot of uh, uh, unreasonable inference uh, going on. Um, and then even if you get lab research right, or animal research or, or mechanical research right, so often it completely falls apart when you try it in humans. It's, there's things that you haven't factored in um, that, you know, it just doesn't work. So, you know, the, the big metal on metal hip failure that occurred, you know, 10 years ago or so uh, worked great in the lab. It didn't work in humans. There's, there's little things that you don't account for. Um, and, and so I'm against, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm against animal research because I'd say, you know, nearly all of it is not necessary. Um, so anyway, this is what supports a lot of surgeries. They'll do something in the lab. They'll um, have a mechanism to explain it and they'll try it out on some patients and it seems to work. That's the wobbly tripod. And to me, it's, it's not enough. It, it does not prove uh, causation. It doesn't prove that your treatment is effective or more effective than not doing it. The only way to do that is to divide patients up randomly and do it on some people and don't do it on others. Sounds pretty simple, um, but that is rarely done. So I suppose we should implore anyone listening to this who's about to sit down and tuck into a Cornetto to do their own research, just to ensure <laughs> that they're safe before they crack on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ultimately, has your undertaking of both the PhD and the book changed uh, how you conduct your work as an academic surgeon? Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my practice has changed enormously from what it was in the first 10 years of my practice to the second 10. So I've been 22 years or 24. 
four years, I guess, since I uh, uh, finished my orthopedic training. Um, it's changed a lot. I used to do uh, a lot of spine fusions, knee scopes, um, and stuff like that because I thought it worked and I don't do it anymore. Uh, I stopped doing spine surgery around about that time, <laughs> coincidentally, when I started looking at the evidence. And um, so my practice has changed a lot. It wasn't so much the PhD. The PhD was one particular body of work, and that was particularly looking at the effect of compensation um, on outcome. Um, it was really the master's. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, if you do a PhD, then you're a good researcher. I would say that the Masters of Clinical Epidemiology did much more to uh, help my research skills than the PhD. It was doing the PhD that perhaps got me to hone those skills, but it was the Clinical Epidemiology Masters that taught me those what those skills were. And so I did it ideally, I think, where I did the Masters and I did the PhD immediately after it, using all the skills that I'd learned in the Masters. And it made it so much easier, the PhD, and made it easier for my supervisor. I did my own statistical analyses and, and that kind of stuff. And so it was, uh, uh, it was a good way to do it, I think. But, I, you know, people out there who are listening, you, know, you don't have to do a PhD if you want to be a good researcher or a good academic, but you need to learn about the science of research. And that's clinical epidemiology. You just changing tack now, but you, you recently featured on SBS's Insight program uh, this year, discussing predatory billing practices by some private health insurers in Australia. We both thought it was a really fascinating watch. Um, and since then, we've seen ARPA publish figures suggesting that only forty-four percent of Australians, at current estimates, have taken out private health cover, which is the lowest figure this century. Yeah, it's gone down a bit. No, it's always hovered around 50%. Mm. Um, so I should correct you there, it's not predatory billing practices by insurers. The insurers don't get to say what the, uh, what the fee is. Um, they can say what they will cover, but um, the person who sets the bill is the surgeon. Yeah, we're doing some more research on this at the moment. Um, it has not been an area of focus of mine because I've deliberately avoided it because I'm more about whether the procedure works or not. Um, you know, it, in some respects, I'm a bit of a free market or a libertarian or whatever, and people can charge what they want. And if you, you know, if you want to pay uh, extra for something because you think it's better, um, go for it. People do that all the time. Um, but having looked into it, there is a problem with that. Uh, and there is a, a definitely an information imbalance um, and there isn't a free market. There isn't an open market. It's not like uh, I want to buy a car. If I don't like your price, I'm just going to drive down the road and, and get it from the other guy. In fact, I'm not even going to drive down there. I'm just going to look it up on the computer and I know immediately what everyone's charging. Um, and you, it's harder to do that. Also, and I learned this before, but it was also highlighted on that uh, insight program is when you're treating cancer it's even harder because um, you know you tell someone oh, you've got cancer uh, you need to have surgery you, you don't want to quibble about the price you know and, and if the surgeon who you trust and who's been looking after you for, for the lead-up time says well you know, I'd love to do surgery and I can book it in next week but it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars out of pocket you think Oh, what the hell, you know? It's like, less, you know, I won't get a new car, you know? Like, I'll scrape the money or I'll borrow it or something because uh, it's my health. That, you know, how can you put a, a price on your health? Um, 
But in reality, you're not doing that because you can quite likely get that operation done for $10,000 less just as well, if not better. That's the sadness of it. Um, people don't realise that because it's not a labour market. They don't have all the information available to them. So I do see problems with it. Now, having said that, before I get um, accused of bashing surgeons, um, we're now looking at some of the data on this, and I would say that the proportion of surgeons that charge, you know, what many consider to be a reasonable fee, um, like you know the the AMA fees, for example, or we're doing some research in workers' comp at the moment. We're looking at what proportion of the surgeons are charging the recommended, you know, workers' comp fees and stuff like that, and it's it's like nearly all of them, you know. So it's it's by far the majority uh, of surgeons are charging a fairly common, you know, average kind of fee. Now, that fee is larger than the scheduled fee, but when you look at the scheduled fee, it's ridiculous. You know, I, I try not to charge too much, but the scheduled fee is crazy low. You know, I, I could, um, in trauma, um, the example I give is a supracondylar elbow fracture. I've done a couple of real doozies in the last couple of months, really bad fractures that basically took me like four or five hours to, to put together. Um, that, you know, a, a lot of people I think would have struggled with and, um, and I struggled with and, and I got it in the end and I had to look after that patient for, you know, 12 weeks afterwards, which is all included in the, in the surgical fee um, and, uh, and all the training that's gone into me doing that. The schedule fee for that um, is like uh, like three hundred bucks or something, and to me that's just crazy. You know, there's no way I wouldn't bother doing it for that. It's just, not, you know, I mean, it, it's it's very low. And when you look at the schedule fee that the government keeps referring to, because that's their fee, it's barely gone up since it was set in like 1985. Um, and so those fees are ridiculously low. Um, but if you look at the proportion of surgeons that charge um, AMA recommended fees, which incidentally started as exactly the same as the MBS fees, the medi medical benefits schedule started off the AMA fees that were the same. Um, but the AMA fees increased by you know a combination of average weekly earnings and consumer price index and that kind of stuff due to a formula, subject to a formula. Um, and, and those fees are, are quite reasonable, yeah. and most surgeons charge them. So I suppose speaking of that information sort of scarcity that you, you talk about being available to the patients, I suppose one of the more controversial ideas that's been floated to potentially remedy this is a rate and compare website. Um, I've seen it garner quite a bit of attention in the popular media. Do you have any thoughts as to whether or not you think that could help? So what do you mean rate and compare surgeons? Yeah, or, yeah. People do that now. Mm -hmm. you, you go on and I know um, if you plug in surgeons' names, you'll see people who have rated them and said, but then those things are just like, you know, it's like TripAdvisor as well. Mm -hmm. they, they can be gamed and you, you don't know how much you can trust them. You get a couple of bad reviews and it may be something completely unrelated to the outside the surgeon's control. You know, the, the appointments were cancelled or... Uh, um, you know, so it's it doesn't necessarily those ratings don't tell you if that's a good surgeon or not. So, 
you know, sure, go for it. People are doing it already, but like all of those things, you've got to take them with a grain of salt. Um, the other thing that's been pushed is to uh, advertise surgeons' uh, fees. Um, but that's a little difficult. I mean, surgeons' fees, fees vary a little bit. They don't normally have one sort of set fee for everything. There's difficult cases and easier cases, um, and they may adjust the fee accordingly. Um, uh, some surgeons do that. Some surgeons say that they will charge you know, and advertise that they will charge a no-gap fee, for example, and charge with the insurer's rebate. That's fine. You're allowed to do that. Um, you know, it's... I don't have a big problem with it, but um, it would have to be voluntary. I mean, there's no other way of doing it. Um, there's no way, other way of finding a particular surgeon's fee unless that surgeon puts it out there. Um, so if surgeons want to do it, um, I have no problem with it. Um, and it may be a way of, you know, if they put out a reasonable fee and people want to go to them, that may be a way of generating business for them. So just changing tack now, I think the audience would be fascinated to learn more about your evolution as a surgeon scientist and author. So why orthopedics and when did you decide upon this path? Oh, I don't know, give you the long story or the short story. I guess I give Plenty you the long story. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the long story and you guys can cut it. <laughs> edit, edit it later. Um, so yeah, always been interested in <coughs> science. So I was the, you know, the kid at, geeky kid at school who loved physics, maths and that kind of stuff. And so um, um, I wanted to do maths at, at, at university. And so I just love the appeal of, you know, of, of logic uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's always been appealing to me and, you know, doing puzzles and, and all this kind of stuff. So that's my background personality, I guess. Um, and, uh, and so surgery is kind of appealing um, uh, in the sort of the mechanical aspects of it. And within surgery, orthopedics in particular is even more appealing if you are mechanically minded. Um, my dad was uh, was a, an engineer and and like best handyman in the world. You know, he could like build anything, solve any mechanical problem. And and that kind of like appealed to me. I, I, I like that kind of thinking. Uh, I was never nearly as good as him, but um, um, but um, that led me, I think, to, to orthopedics. You know, it's this kind of like, and, and within orthopedics, I think that led me to trauma. You know, because then you're putting the puzzle, literally putting the jigsaw back together again um, and putting plates and screws and nails in to, to hold it in place. So I just found that very appealing. I think a lot of people do. Um, and so that's why I wanted to do trauma. And not many people were doing trauma at the time in orthopedics. It wasn't really attractive because people wanted to do joint replacements, um, sports medicine, you know, shoulders. These are the, these are sort of the... Um, the, the glossier kind of uh, specialties, uh, but I just love doing trauma, so um, that's that's what appealed to me. So that's how I got into orthopedics in the first place, um, just an appeal to the mechanistic sort of logical side of it. Um, ends up it's not as clear cut as that, um, and uh, and then yeah, I always wanted to be a scientist. So I wanted to do trials, but I started doing them when I was a surgeon. I took a job as a staff specialist in Liverpool, which is where I still work today. Um, and um, 
wanted to do some trials and actually did a couple of uh, randomized trials when I was in early practice before I'd learned about clinical epidemiology because they had a surgical unit there which had a, a, a researcher and they helped me you know with generating the random numbers and um, uh, keeping them concealed and things like that so I, I kind of learned a few principles but when I look back at the clinical trials that I did back then I'm almost ashamed you know because there's that was so badly done um, but I didn't know that at the time um, and it was it was I guess it was this drive and in surgery a lot of people talk about this once you get into a groove and you've got your specialty or whatever and you've got your practice you've got your job and you spend a lot of time operating and that was that was me and I was you know I remember more than one occasion operating all night through the night and the next day uh, with busy traumas at Liverpool just loved it and uh, I'd come home exhausted at the end of the day but I wasn't doing anything else you do that for about seven years uh, a lot of people say and then it just kind of like there's got to be a little more to this and that's really what happened to me so I I um, you know come home you know late at night after operating all day crash in front of the TV and watch Law and Order yeah, and that was my that was my life um, but always wanted to do more, so I wanted to learn about science and be a better scientist and be a better surgeon because of that. Um, and so that's the rest of the story I told you, which got me into clinical epidemiology and then into research and, uh, um, and then into trying to promote that amongst others. So one of my things is trying to make um, the world a little more scientific. So it's not just orthopods and it's not just surgeons, it's actually the public and um, so I'm a member of a few societies that, that you know, promote um, scientists, so sceptic society, uh, that kind of stuff, that, that promote um, uh, scientific thought and, and uh, critical thinking and try to um, block the, um, you know, the pseudoscience uh, that's out there. Because a lot of universities capitalize on pseudoscience and have these crazy degrees in things that are stupid and so uh, we push against that um, and so I just think everyone needs to be a bit more scientific I think it'll make for a better world. Did you entertain a backup specialty then? If it wasn't orthopedics could you see yourself doing anything else? Oh yeah so in the junior days I was always looking at surgery. I mean, I toyed with a couple of other things when I was a student, like everybody does. Um, thought about doing pathology. I thought that would be like uh, anatomical pathology and, um, and uh, um, you know, sort of forensic pathology. Um, so that was an area of interest of, of mine. Um, but I did an elective uh, in my final year, uh, which really kind of sold me. Uh, a little bit. I did. I went to um, Samoa, uh, to Apia, and worked there. And uh, it, at the time, you know, not a lot of specialists there or anything. Pretty uh, low-level medicine. But there was a guy there who was uh, out from Europe. He was a French Vietnamese guy who was an orthopedic surgeon who was working in Germany at the time. And he took his family uh, for a few years out to Samoa to do orthopedics. And they said, well, you can work with this guy if you want. I said, oh, yeah, it sounds all right. Yeah, I might do that. And this guy was, like, phenomenal. He was a, you know, workaholic uh, um, and did amazing things with limited resources. 
um, you know, we didn't have an image intensifier in the theatres. You know, so he had to work out ways of of, uh, of fixing things without X-ray. Um, uh, limited implants. Um, you know, we did a lot of stuff with plaster. You know, closure reductions, and um, he, you know, just taught me absolutely heaps in the few months I was there. And I, I was just infected by his, you know, enthusiasm as well, um, and his knowledge. And uh, so I actually learned a lot. And I thought, oh yeah, I think that's for me. But yeah, I, I considered plastic surgery, neurosurgery. I mean, a lot of people at, at your level, you know, just finished medicine, they're interns or junior residents. They go through the same thing, you know. They, they they'll decide that surgery's for them, but um, they you know they'll float around and do a couple of terms and see what they like. And interestingly, a lot of them get influenced by the the people they work with rather than the specialty itself. And if you do a couple of good terms with some orthopedic surgeons in a unit that's fun where everyone gets along and they take you under their wing a little bit and look after you. Now, that's a very positive reinforcement. You're going to want to do orthopedics after that, you know. Um, so that, you know, that's what happens to you. Um, and I was lucky in my intern year. Um, I worked at a hospital. This is during the, the dispute. So most people my age and older in, in New South Wales, at least, know about the dispute. And so this is 1984, 1988, when um, there was... Uh, the orthopedic surgeons weren't working in the public hospitals. Um, and uh, so the orthopedic registrar had nothing to do. Um, and so he kind of took me under his wing. And he, uh, he was a very funny guy. He's um, um, uh, now a very senior orthopod. But he, uh, yeah, basically took me under his wing. And we did some, like, you know, close reductions in the emergency department and stuff like that in those days. And uh, I was very influenced by him and other people I'd worked with um, that made me want to do orthopedics. Pretty easy to identify a bit of a theme between law and order and forensic pathology. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would perhaps would have ruined the, uh, the law and order. I suppose, do you have any advice then um, for any medical students or junior doctors sort of standing at the fork in the road? Or um, Yeah, I, I'll give you one piece of advice that was given to me when I was an intern. So I uh, was working at this hospital as an intern um, and... At lunchtime, we'd, you know, you go to the uh, RMO's room and the registrars and residents just hang out and chat. And as I was an intern, you know, people often ask you, you know, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? And I remember saying at the time, I said, well, I'm kind of interested in orthopedic surgery, but I'm not sure whether, it, you know, whether I, whether I'll end up doing it. And they said, why not? I said, because it's too hard. It's too hard to get into. It's really, you know, and they all laughed at me and they said, if you if you want to do something, you'll do it. You know, don't don't not do it because it's too hard. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And having seen you know countless people come after me, um, yeah, if you want to do something bad enough, you'll do it. You'll do what's needed to to get in. You'll do the exams. You'll pass them. You know, I mean, you got through medicine. You can do it. Um, and and it's very rare that somebody would be you know, I mean, it does happen. I'm not completely naive. I know that some people don't get to do what they wanted, but you'd be surprised. By far, the majority do. You know, if somebody, you know, if an intern 
at your hospital they decides that neurosurgery is for them you know that's what they really want to do they're going to be hanging around neurosurgeons they're going to be hanging around the department attending the meetings they're going to be learning about neurosurgery reading about it turning up to theaters maybe doing a research project you know so that's the kind of person that's going to be a neurosurgeon um so yeah if so my advice is is if you are particularly passionate about one particular area and you want to do it just go for it and do it um, if you're not that keen on it, then maybe think about something else. Because the good thing about medicine is you can do almost anything. Um, there's so much scope uh, for you to, to travel. I've got a lot of friends that join the military. Um, you know, if that's what you want to do, there's a lot of avenues for people to do that. Uh, I've got friends who are doctors on cruise ships. And, um, uh, you know, they like doing that. Some of them just do research, don't do any clinical work at all. That's great. They really enjoy that. Um, uh, you know, administration, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do. Um, so, the, you know, the world's your oyster. If you're an intern right now, you know, just pick what you want to do. That's great advice. I think um, the converse of that, can you recall any sort of horror advice that you received or what's the worst piece of advice you received as a junior? that didn't bear true necessarily for you? Um, no, not really. No, I, I'm a bit of an optimist and sometimes I look at things, despite what people think, I look at things sometimes through rose-coloured glasses, I think. I, I had a very um, uh, fortunate path through life, <laughs> basically. You know, got into medicine, got through medicine without any trouble, Got all the jobs I wanted to get as interns and residents, and got onto orthopedics, and and I, and I didn't, I didn't get onto orthopedics straight away. So I don't want you to think I'm like a, a wonderkind or something. It took me three goes to get on the to apply to the orthopedic training scheme, which was longer than usual. And most people it was one or two, um, and the the time before I got in. Um, I was the first reserve, so I'd like just missed out. And uh, and I remember everybody kind of like consoling me, saying, oh, that's oh, too bad, you know, don't take it too hard, you know, don't get depressed. And I'm like, oh, I'm not depressed. I was first reserve, that's really good, you know. That means I should get on next year, you know, if I, if I continue to, you know, play my cards right. I wasn't worried about it at all. Um, but then the year after I did get on, um, and I remember the person who was first reserved that time was completely dejected, you know, and was depressed and was miserable and just thought, oh my God, my life's over and stuff like that. And I'm like, what are you worried about? You know, <laughs> you'll get on next year. And he did, you know. Um, so, yeah. Um, don't sweat the small stuff, I guess, um, is some more advice I'd give you. You know, th things will work out if you if you're halfway sensible, um, things will work out, you know, because the, the, the people where I've seen things don't work out um, have been at one end of the spectrum, I think. Um, so no, I don't think I've ever had any bad advice. Or, or if, they, if I have, I haven't taken it. <laughs> no infectious disease consultant told you too much ice cream, please depart. <laughs> <laughs> if the legal team from Buller is listening, we promise we'll give you right of reply <laughs> in due course. Um, I suppose one of the last things to finish on um, was, and I probably already know the answer, but was there a, I suppose, a setback or a parent, a parent setback that set you up for later success? And 
I suppose with that, do you have like a, a favourite setback of yours? Yeah, I probably should have thought about these before. Uh, rather than doing it on we the spot, we are podcasting professionals. Uh, yeah, no, that's good. And, and when you think about it, I, I can I can think that I, I I've had you know I have had significant setbacks, and and I can remember that that feeling you know in the pit of your stomach that you get you just think oh I've screwed up you know I've done this wrong and uh, uh, um, you know and that and that does happen, um, but. I've always been able to come out of it, you know, on the other side and, and another kind of, um, you know, philosophy I've worked on is that that nothing is all bad. Um, there's always something you can learn um, out of it. And so often when these setbacks occur and, um, you know, things don't go your way, um, you know, you just have to think, okay, well, you know, there's got to be something I can learn from that. Some good will come from that. Um, it's kind of—it sounds corny. It's kind of like every cloud has a silver lining or something like that. But, but that's the way I've—I've I've done it. And um, and you know, it's not new. Everybody, nearly everybody, does it. You, you come out of the other at the other end. And so, being able to see yourself in a few weeks' time or a few months' time out of it, and knowing that you've done it before and you'll do it again, is very helpful. Um, and so that's what's helped me through setbacks just thinking well that's okay I'll you know I've learned from this and and I know I'll get out of it I feel like crap at the moment but I know that in the near future I won't um, and that's been very helpful thank you so much for taking your time out today Prof Harris I think uh, before the angry mob of the dairy uh, lobby are knocking down the door <laughs> we best get out of the building but before you sign off um, if people want to learn more about you or indeed your work or your book um, where can they pick up a copy or where can they do that? Well, the, the book, um, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo, is available anywhere. So you get it on Amazon or, I don't know, Booktopia or, or whatever. Um, it's not an audio book. I should make it an audio book. Um, but, so you can, down, you can download it on Kindle or whatever you want. But it's a book basically about surgery and about the history of surgery and how it came to be and how what we're doing even now is probably a lot of it probably doesn't work um, and so to me it wasn't that shocking but to a lot of other people it is so I'd probably recommend it to people at your level is that medical students and junior doctors because it's a bit of an eye-opener um, but if they want to contact me or if they want to do some research or if they want advice, because I um, take a lot of students and I, I try to help other people do research, even if, I don't, even if I'm not involved in it, I can give people advice because I've um, been doing it for a while now. Um, if people want to contact me, like they do anyway, um, like you guys did, <laughs> um, then I'm pretty easy to find. And, and are you on social media at all? Uh, yeah, I don't. I I have I have a blog uh, which I haven't updated for over a year. So it's just sitting there, um, and uh, it's Doctor Skeptic. It's pretty easy to find. Um, Skeptic with a K. If you look that up, you find it. But the reason I did the blog, and this is interesting for anyone who wants to write a book, because I, I always said, oh, I'd like to write a book, but it's too hard. You know, it's like. Uh, too much effort and, and I haven't got time and a friend of mine said just do a blog nobody writes books anymore and, um, and I thought well blog's easy because you just write these little chunks you know a few hundred words and then I realised 
um, what a lot of other people have realized before me is that, hey, it's easy to take all these chunks and knit them together as a book. Um, and so I used a lot of the bits I'd written in the blog um, to make the book, that made writing the book a little easier. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, um, at Dr. Doubter, um, all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-O-U-B-T-E-R. One word. Yeah, yeah. Um, <coughs> yeah, but you can, yeah, I, I need to update the blog. I just attended the Preventing Overdiagnosis conference in Sydney last week. It's a world conference, rotates around the world every year, and it's fantastic. It's all about how a lot of the stuff we do doesn't work. Um, and uh, it's sponsored like it's sponsored by Oxford and the BMJ and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a really good bunch of people. So I was going to write a blog on that, some highlights from that. So I'll post that hopefully in the next week or two over Christmas. Right, something for the audience to look forward to. Yeah. Professor Ian Harris, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to accommodate us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.